Well, we left Jonah on the storm-tossed sea, having confessed that he was fleeing the Lord, and that it was his God who was the God who made the sea and the dry land, standing there before a, 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 a band of terrified sailors who finally put two and two together, the sailors, and they asked Jonah at the end of last week's text, what have you done? What have you done? And so this morning we pick up the story in the middle of chapter 1, still on the turbulent sea. And we'll make the three points that are there in your bulletin on the outline. The insert, um, substitution, satisfaction, salvation. So first, substitution. Verse 11 says, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked Jonah, what should we do? Notice, what should we do to you? (laughs) What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? It's your God, Jonah, who's the God of the sea. right? So remember, these men are pagan polytheists maybe with one go-to God. Your God's the God of the sea, and you told us you're the cause of the problem. So you should provide us with a solution. Right? There must be some procedure, some recipe. Right? What's the procedure with your God to satisfy him? This is pagan worship, but it's deeply rooted in the human heart. Right? We, we approach God with ulterior motives. Right? Okay, what's the procedure, God? What's the recipe? What's the list? What's the technique to get God to do what we'd like to get done? Because the thing we'd like to get done, that's the real end we're after. God often becomes for us a means to an end. This is a subtle form of idolatry that's deeply rooted in our hearts. Right? We we are to worship the triune God for his own glory. He is the end of all things for us. But we're easily given to this notion of, well, we're in a storm, so there must be some way to propitiate God to get the the, the outcome we want, to change the storm. That's paganism. So they ask Jonah. And in verse 12, Jonah shockingly says to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. And notice this, he confesses some guilt here. He says, I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So God had hurled, remember we said, used the word, he hurled like a javelin, this great wind on the sea. And now Jonah uses the same word, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. So as usual, the fact that we know the story and kind of how it goes, it can blunt for us just how strange and provocative a command this is from Jonah. He was told to arise, to get up and go to Nineveh. But as we said, he keeps going down, down to Joppa, the text says, down below deck. And now he has to be thrown down into the depths of the sea, right, out of fear and hatred for these wicked Ninevites. So we have to ask here, we can't help but ask, I think, Why? What is he thinking here? I mean, has he truly repented? Even to the point of being willing to give himself up for the men on this boat? 
The rest of the book makes that highly unlikely. In fact, the rest of the book makes it clear that that thesis is wrong. This might look like repentance. Often we're like this, right? We get in a jam, we do stuff that looks like repentance. But it really isn't sustained repentance. It's pagan propitiation. This is not repentance. There might be here a sliver, maybe, maybe, of altruism. He does acknowledge it's his fault that the storm has come. Notice, he says, upon you. This is the first time in the text Jonah has acknowledged the existence of any other human being besides himself. And he does say, and he speaks as a prophet, for how else could he know? He says, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. It will become calm. But it's much more likely and much more consistent with the whole book that he's resigned himself to death. Chapter 4 makes it pretty clear he just wants to give up and die. Right? If God is not going to judge these Ninevites, right? if God's going to fight by mercy to his enemies, I don't want to fight that way. There's all of this self-indulgent despair in Jonah. Because his enemies are not going to be treated the way he wants his enemies treated. But not only is there resignation in him, almost certainly this is his rebellion coming to its full conclusion. He's saying something like this to these sailors. I would rather die than repent. I would rather perish in the sea than preach. Anything other than fulfilling my prophetic office to the hated Gentiles. Right? Because if Nineveh dies, I mean, if I die, Nineveh won't hear the word of God. Not from my lips, anyway. Over my dead body will Nineveh hear about the mercy of God. If Nineveh comes under judgment, then Israel is safe. At least that's the perverse logic at work here, right? If Nineveh comes under judgment, then Israel is safe. So, you know, when you put all of us, any of us, under this kind of pressure, right, I think it's safe to assume that Jonah's motivations are mixed. But they are mostly, almost certainly, resignation and rebellion. So, what I want to focus on here, though, is not so much psychoanalyzing Jonah's motives. But I want to focus on what he objectively says and does or has done to him, maybe it's more accurate, here in the text. Whatever his motives, and we know from the, the whole book that they're not pure, he puts himself forward here as a substitute. Throw me into the sea, and it will become. He's like the scapegoat saying, again, in his actions, if not in his heart, if not in his actual intention, his actions are saying, put your sins on my head. He may not intend this, but this is objectively what actually he does. And this is a picture, a bright and a beautiful picture of the gospel of God. Right? Because at the heart of the gospel is not just that God is love. Right? It's God's substitutionary love right? that is the heart of the gospel for us. Greater Love has no man than this, 
than to lay down his life for a friend. Christ lived and especially died for you. And that little word for has the whole gospel in it for us, right? The gospel is God in Jesus Christ substituting himself in our hour of desperate need, in the storms that have engulfed us because of our own rebellion. And it's a total substitution, beloved. We have to be displaced. We need one to stand in, to obey for us where we have disobeyed, to cover over our impurity with his purity, and then to die for our breaking the covenant. It's a total substitution. It's what the early fathers of the church, what John Calvin called the glorious exchange. He gets our sin and our unrighteousness, and we get his righteousness. It's complete, total displacement, substitution. Jonah, then, is both a disobedient, defeated man and a prophetic man whose actual actions regardless of his motives, are commandeered here by God's mercy. They're commandeered, they're taken up into God's narrative. The God who makes even the wrath of men and the hard-heartedness of men to praise him, they're taken up into that narrative and they point us to Christ, our Savior, our substitute. So, the second thing I want to say here is satisfaction. That's substitute. When they finally throw Jonah overboard in verse 15, the text says, the raging sea grew calm. So the the raging sea here is a metaphor for the just wrath of God. And it is Jonah being offered to it, which placates it, which quenches it, which satisfies it. So this is beyond substitution. This is beyond taking our place. This is satisfaction. Or more precisely, to use a big fancy word that you should know, propitiation. This is propitiation. It's a word which occurs four times in the New Testament. I'll give you the references. It's uh, Romans 3.25. We heard that in the New Testament lesson. I think it was translated atoning sacrifice there. Hebrews 2.17, and then twice in 1 John, 1 John 2.2 and 1 John 4.10. You should know this word, right? Again, it's often translated like atoning sacrifice, but it means something richer. It means an offering which not only wipes sin away, but an offering which satisfies the justice and wrath of God against sin, Right? Paul says in the New Testament lesson, God set forth Christ as a propitiation for our sins. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says propitiation is the heart of the gospel. Right? Without it, we cannot even begin to plumb the depths, the mysterious depths of the cross. Now, in modern times, a strange thing has happened. People don't like to talk about propitiation, even inside the church. People are queasy. 
Because satisfying the wrath of God makes it sound like God is angry. You've got an angry father. He sends the son, and the son placates the father. Or God is made to sound vindictive. Let me assure you, God is not vindictive. God is love. And he is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. There's no yin-yang in God. No darkness in God. And as love and as light, he has a passion for justice, for holiness. He is committed to the eradication of evil in us and in the cosmos. Right? He is determined to rectify the world. And so what is happening in the cross of Christ is that God comes in person. He doesn't send someone else. He comes in the person of the Son who is God to bear away his own wrath, to uphold his own justice against sin. And so that in the cross, then, God's justice and God's mercy kiss. It's there, then, at the cross. We see the holy, justice-upholding love of God in all of its splendor. It's there that we hear Paul's word from the epistle reading, that God there can be just and the justifier of the ungodly. How can God be just and deal with sin justly and still save sinners? Propitiation is the reason. Satisfaction. And so what we see in our text is Jonah, in his own strange, twisted way, as a picture of Christ. Right? The Christ who calms the sea, the raging waters, He would calm them on the Sea of Galilee, and Christ would later calm the raging waters of God's justice on the hill of Calvary. So as we said before, Jonah can be a type of Christ, right? And by type here, we mean something in the Old Testament which foreshadows or points forward to Jesus. So if you're not familiar with the the word type, that's what we mean. It could be a person. It could be an event. It could be an institution. Jonah's a type of Christ, but there's these important differences between them. And this is true of all types and shadows. They're not like the thing they point to in every way. Adam is like Christ, but very much unlike Christ. Animal sacrifices point to Jesus' sacrifice, but there's really important differences between. So here, the thing to see is Jonah is a sign. He is a type of Christ, but he's a broken sign. Christ is the substance. Christ is present even in this Old Testament text. He's the reality. He's the one whose own death and resurrection are, as he heard, we heard in the gospel lesson, they are the sign of Jonah. Put it this way. Jonah, the disobedient prophet, is thrown into the water for his own sins, or at least caused by his own sins. Christ, the obedient son, bears our sins, accepts our total condemnation. And this condemnation that Jesus undergoes for you, right? This burial by Christ in the oceanic, infinite depths of God's justice. This propitiating, satisfaction of the storm of the holy God. This is why there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
This is the gospel. The raging storm, <coughs> excuse me, of God's wrath, his just wrath, <coughs> and his holy anger against our sin has been stilled. <coughs> it's been made calm. It's been placated. You know what the cross is? It's like a kind of reverse Noah's flood where the righteous one is drowned under the ocean of the storm of God's justice that the unrighteous might live. And so the justice of the last day, of the final judgment, has been carried out for you already on the scarred and broken body of Jesus Christ, the greater Jonah. And that means you are now, right now, already acquitted. Right? In the, when we get to the heart of this, this gospel of propitiation, this means the irreversible verdict has already been rendered and announced over your head. The head of God's people, not guilty. It's like, it's like having the verdict in your hand when you walk into the courtroom. That's what justification is like. That's what propitiation does. That's satisfaction. So the third point here is salvation. When the substitute makes satisfaction, salvation follows. There's a kind of logical order here. Now here in the text, I want to move back up to verse 13. This is before Jonah is cast into the, into the sea, into the raging waters. The reaction of these sailors to Jonah's gesture is instructive. These men try, at great risk to themselves, to save Jonah's life, right? To row back to shore in the teeth of the storm. Though he's a stranger to them. They don't know who he is. And he's unjustly brought this storm down on their heads. They try to row back to land. Again, the theme which repeats itself in the book of Jonah. The pagans are more virtuous than the prophet. But saving Jonah is not going to be possible. The sea grows wilder, rougher and rougher, the text says. And they cry out to the Lord, these sailors do. Now, this this language of crying out to the Lord is usually associated with true piety. We'll come back to it in a second. But notice this, they pray. This is the first prayer in the book. And true to form, it's from the lips of pagans. There's still no praying from Jonah. And not only do they pray, they pray to the Lord. They use his covenantal name, the name he revealed to Moses at the burning bush, his proper name. They no longer cry out to their own God, but to the true God. And while it's disputed about whether or not these men are saved here or not, I can tell you this, this is at least the very beginning of true conversion. And when you look at the text, you can see they do not want to anger God. They say, Lord, don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. So these sailors are in a terrible, terrible bind. They know Jonah's responsible. They know he's running from the Lord. They know his God has brought the storm. And they know what Jonah has asked them to do. Jonah has asked them in their minds to commit murder. Right? To kill him. And they try unsuccessfully to avoid it. 
to spare the prodigal prophet. And now at the last resort, they plead with God not to be held guilty of murder. Again, the point is not that Joan is innocent. The point is they don't want to be accountable for his death. It's a desperate prayer, but I want you to notice the end of it. Because at the end of the prayer, they make this very simple, but it's a remarkable confession. They say this, For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Now, that language should echo in your ear. But, but notice, notice the progression in the story. The captain had earlier said to Jonah, Get up. Call on your God. Maybe, maybe he'll take notice of us. Right? That's pagan polytheism saying, hey, it's worth a shot. Let's try your God. Here, this is a biblical confession of the covenant Lord, of God's sovereignty over and in and through the storm, when they say, for you, Lord, have done what you have pleased. This confession is a sign of genuine salvation. This, this language, O oh Lord, you have done what you have pleased, is used three times in Scripture. I'll give you the references. Psalm 115, Psalm 135, and Isaiah 46. You could look it up as you're at your leisure. Psalm 115, Psalm 135, and Isaiah 46. Now, what's important here is this. All three times, it is connected to a repudiation of idols and to an embrace of the sovereign Lord. All three times. To take one example, here's Psalm 115. Right? The beginning of Psalm 115, the psalmist says this, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. That's just what the sailors just said. And then he says right after that, But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. And notice this also. This prayer of confession, this calling upon the name of God, taking God's name on their lips and confessing his sovereign kingship, it is made by these pagan sailors, well, no longer pagans, I contend. It is made before they know what God will do when they cast Jonah into the sea. Right? The boat is still rocking back and forth and the water spilling over. And Jonah is still on the boat with them. And they have confessed the God of Israel and turned from their idols already. So they cast Jonah into the sea. The sea is propitiated. It grows calm and peaceful. Now, if you had any doubt at all about the salvation of this crew, it's put beyond all question in verse 16. It says, at this, at this calming of the raging sea, the men greatly feared the Lord. The men greatly feared the Lord. And so the author wants us to kind of pick up these breadcrumbs that go like this. Right? They were afraid when the storm came on the ship in verse 5. They feared. They feared a great fear in verse 10 when Jonah told them who he was. But now, now, after the satisfaction of the sea, they greatly fear the Lord. This is the clean, enduring, saving fear. Right? This is not the terror and dread of pagan fear. This is a new fear. And this fear is the root of true worship. Right? The fear of God is the root of true worship. And worship is what happens next on the boat. Right? This battered boat becomes a temple 
They offer a sacrifice to the Lord, right? No longer merely to Jonah's God. They sacrifice to the Lord. And just to show you that this is no foxhole conversion, right? They make vows to the Lord. A sacrifice followed by vows, and the vows bind them to the Lord going forth into the future. It's a beautiful picture of what Isaiah prophesied about Gentiles sacrificing to God and vowing to him. This is part of the prophetic vision of the future of the nations. Listen to uh, Isaiah. This is Isaiah 19, verse 21. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings, and they will make vows to the Lord and keep them. So these men are not Egyptians, but the same dynamic is at play. They sacrifice and they make vows. So, So they are now far from Israel, out in the middle of the Mediterranean. They are the newest members of the covenant community. They are worshipers of the God of Israel. Substitution and satisfaction has produced salvation. So I'll say that again because that's the whole sermon in one sentence. If you're a young person, you can get the whole sermon here. Or if you're an old person. Right? Jesus is our substitute. Right? And as our substitute, he satisfies God's justice. And therefore, we are saved. So I want to conclude by highlighting the grand actor of this text, who is God himself, the thing upon which the spotlight of the text is thrown, which is the glorious grace of God. The God who, as the sailors confessed, has done whatever he pleased. So I'm just going to step back and say a couple things as we conclude. So here we have Jonah. He's miserable. He's alone. He's condemned. He's disobedient. He's prayerless. He's under the deep displeasure of God. He's fleeing as fast and as far as he can from the very purposes of God. Right? He is resigned to dying. He is hardened in his rebellion. He is steadfastly set against his call to go and proclaim the mercy of God to Gentiles. And in all of this, because our God is in the heavens and does as he pleases, in all of this, get this, Jonah fulfills his calling. He brings salvation to the Gentiles. You know, God does not really need our programs, right? Or our strategies, or our plans, our engagements. I hear a lot of stuff like this. Like, if the church would just do this, then this would happen. That's kind of, you got to be careful talking like that if you're a reformed person, right? It, it, it's, it's kind of a, can often be a works righteousness or a kind of a semi-works righteousness thing. It's one thing to say God uses us, of course. It's another thing to say he needs us, 
or he's dependent on us. He needs nothing. He's a completely sufficient God. There's a deep, dark irony that Jonah has brought salvation to the Gentiles. So get this. The sailors, it turns out, are not just placeholders or props in the story. You know, these odd, strange people hanging around the fringes of your life, they're not just props in the story. They're people that God wants to reach. These are human beings whom the God of Israel loves, these sailors. And the disobedient prophet is thrown overboard for a boatload of unclean Gentiles. The very thing he didn't want to do. I don't think he envisioned his ministry going this way. So here's what we have in Jonah. Jonah is a one-man anti-missionary committee. Right? His position, his vision statement, which he would staple up on the bulletin board in the hallway, right? his vision statement reads as follows. I will not do any missionary work. I refuse. I will flee. I would rather die than serve these Gentiles. Kill me if you have to, but I will not bring the gospel to the enemies of Israel. Respectfully submitted Jonah, head of the anti-missionary committee. He gives the same report every year at the congregational meeting. And in God's sovereign, marvelous grace, which abounds all the more where sin abounds, out of all of this human frailty, Jonah is overruled. And he's taken up into the narrative of the sovereign God's successful action because our God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. Right? Jonah's anti-missionary fervor has led to the conversion. Think of how many missionary strategies we have that have no fruit. Jonah has a decidedly, I will do no missionary work strategy. And it has led to the conversion to the harvest of Gentiles at sea. Right? This is what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 1 when he says, we should be then to the praise of his glorious grace. Right? Praise be to God for free, sovereign, glorious, overruling grace. Grace which is greater than all of our sins. Amen. Amen. 